I want to start today with a quote, and it's a quote that I think really frames our study today very well. Um, I'm going to throw a lot of terms out today, and today is, today is deep weeds. Today is take out the machete and hack your way through the brush, because it, there's tough stuff today. But um, the word eschatology is a word that perhaps you've heard before. It literally just means the study of end times or developing a theology of end times. So with that in mind, hear this quote. This person said, A true biblical eschatology prepares overcomers for the difficulties that they must endure, and it helps them to stand with confidence that the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit is surely coming. And I want to affirm that today as we go into our text and as we talk about the end times and as we talk about uh, the future of our world. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, when he's in the upper room with the disciples, he prays specifically in John 17, verse 15. He says, Father, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And for us as Western American Christians, we always jump to the fact that keeping means deliverance out of. And I've said so many times, if you look historically throughout Scripture, God's keeping very often is in the midst of. It's not bailing out of a situation, but it's protection in the midst of. Daniel was protected in the midst of the, dying, the lion's den as God shut the mouths of the, lion, uh, the lions. Jonah was protected inside of the whale. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were protected within the fiery furnace. Christ asked, may this cup pass from me, and yet... That wasn't the will of the Father. And so Scripture says that God was in Christ on the cross bearing the sins of the world. And we have traditionally jumped to Revelation 3.10, which says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, therefore I will keep you from that hour of testing which is about to come upon the world to test the faith of those who dwell on earth. And we think, great, we're going to be bailed out. And I just want you to consider today that whatever that means for us, God has the power to keep us, whether we are bailed out or whether we go through it. And I want you to be open to that this morning. And I want to begin today by talking about three unfortunate dangers. Your, your outline doesn't have points today because you're probably going to take furious notes and I want you to be able to write down what's meaningful to you because as I'm going to say many times today, my goal today is not that you agree with me. My goal today is that I shake you, that I rattle you enough to think for yourself, enough to go home and search the scriptures. Because here's the three dangers as I see them. The first is that because scripture says no one knows the day or the hour, therefore many believers have, have kind of twisted that or exaggerated that into believing that all discussions about end times are completely fruitless and speculative. So, you know, that's, you know, that's end times. Forget that. You know, no one knows anyways. And that is not true. There is very much to know and learn about end times from Scripture and to be prepared. Secondly, the popularity of the pre-tribulational view, which is only 200 years old, has led to, in my opinion, a spiritual laziness and irresponsible attitude that dismisses all New Testament warnings as applying to tribulational Christians. What do I mean by that? 
I mean that every time Jesus or Paul or anyone else warns people about be, be careful because people are going to be deceived, people are going to fall away, people's love is going to grow cold, it's like we're not going to be here. That's speaking to people who find the Lord during the tribulation. And yes, that's a valid viewpoint, but no one knows. And it is theologically incorrect and irresponsible to say that every warning like that, that's the case. There is no proof of that, and no one can die on that hill. And so the, the mentality develops, we're not going to be here anyway, so who cares? Which is just an irresponsible position. And I would say if that's true, then let's rip Matthew 24 out of our Bible and not even talk about it. Because it doesn't apply to us. And yet, please understand the context which I will point out in a few moments as we go into Matthew 24. The context shifts and Jesus is no longer talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the Palm Sunday crowd. He is speaking just to his disciples. He is speaking to his disciples and he is preparing them for the end. So that's the moment that we're in the midst of. Here's the last of three dangers. There's, there's more than this, but these are the three primary ones that I want to point out today. The third danger is not just nobody knows the day or the hour, so why talk about it? Or we're not going to be here, so it doesn't matter. The third danger is that we stop wrestling with Scripture. And we become content to let the experts tell us what to think. And by experts, I mean pastors and commentators and any other religious leaders. Like, I don't have to figure it out because so-and-so is going to tell me what to think about this. And friends, that is the worst way to prepare for the end times. I hope that every week as I speak, you go home and if you disagree with me, you wrestle with Scripture and you pray and you, you ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and you, you enter a dialogue with me and with the elders and with all of the leaders that together we are struggling to understand the truth, that it doesn't become divisive, but that we're thinking for ourselves and that we're developing positions that prepare us. And so that's where I'm coming from today. And again, I will say, my goal today is not that you agree with me. My goal is that I might engage you, that I might agitate you in the best possible form of that, that word, and that it will cause you and all of us to dive into Scripture deeper, to discover answers for ourselves. So here's our passage again. Matthew chapter 24, first book in the New Testament, chapter 24. We're going to read the whole chapter. There's a lot of verses. And again, Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples now. And he says, or Matthew says, As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, Do you see these buildings? I tell you the truth that they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us when all of this will come about. What sign will be the signal for your return and the end of the world? Jesus told them, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all of this is only the first of the birth pangs with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. 
Did Brittany warn you that this isn't a very pleasant passage? (laughs) Verse 10. And many will turn away from me and betray me and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We call that the perseverance of the saints. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come, which is actually one of the driving verses of missions and a missiology, which is a theology of missions, is that we hasten the return of the Lord by preaching the word all over the world because once everyone's heard, he's going to come because he says he's not willing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. And so we do that by preaching the gospel. Amen. Verse 15. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object, some of your Bibles say the abomination of desolation, that causes desecration standing in the the holy place. Reader, pay attention, in parentheses. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be a greater anguish than at any other time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Verse 23. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, even if possible, the elect, God's chosen ones. Verse 25, see, I have warned you ahead of time. So if someone tells you, look, the messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go look. Or look, he is hiding here, don't believe it. For as lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so will be when the Son of Man comes. What's he saying real quickly? He's saying, when Jesus comes, the whole world is going to know. When we preach the, the, the book of Revelation, to the study of Revelation, our title for that series was A Global Unveiling. It's going to be night in some parts of the world. It's going to be day in others. But we're going to talk about that later in our passage. It's amazing God's, uh, God's sense of not only humor but drama. And, and how he is going to stage Christ's return. But no one is going to miss it. It's not going to be, oh, run out to the desert to catch him or you're going to miss him. Or you've got to run over here or you might miss it. No, no one is going to miss his return. Verse 28, just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be a deep mourning among the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of the trumpet, And they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and the heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until these things take place. 
We're not going to dwell on that verse today, but the best understanding of that is not the generation of which Jesus was speaking, but the generation that sees these things take place can know for certain that everything will unfold within their lifetime. That's what is the best guess on what that means. Verse 35, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son himself. Only the Father knows. I personally believe that God kept Christ from knowing these details in his humanity so it wouldn't be another temptation for him to divulge. It was just one less thing that he had to worry about you know, keeping to himself. Because obviously Jesus, uh, who is the beginning and the end, and with God from the beginning, you know, without uh, a starting or ending, knows these things in his divinity. But he was kept from that in his humanity. Verse 37, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time that Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken. The other will be left. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, that if the homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when you least expect it. A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom his master can give the responsibility of managing his household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master uh, will put that servant in charge of all that he owns. Verse 48, but if the servant is evil and thinks my master won't be back for a while and begins beating the other servants and partying and getting drunk, the master will return unannounced and unexpected and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see why I asked for prayer this week? <laughs> Tough passage and uh, a lot to cover. I want to begin today by saying something that is laughable for me to say, and many of you are going to think that's nuts. But I have always very much believed, and I believe it the older that I get, that I will see the return of Jesus within my lifetime. Now, you say, well, people have thought that for generations and generations, and yes, that's true. But all of the signs have not been in place. And we could spend a whole sermon or a weekend or a month talking about all those signs. But um, just to name a few, the Mark of the Beast technology obviously is already being implemented. And sure enough, they're putting it in the palm of the hand and the forehand. And they're using it to track children. They're using it to track animals. Um, in the 70s, when I heard end-time speakers talk about one leader being able to track the whereabouts of everybody throughout the world, no matter where they were, I thought, that's nuts, that's impossible. And today, we have GPS and global tracking merely by the cell phones that we readily carry and are on all the time. I mean, one of the many ways that we're able to be tracked. The fact that we are only a breath away from a cashless society 
in the fact that it's even difficult to know in the end times what currency is going to be valid and is going to be meaningful. You know, if you're invested in the stock market, you're thinking, should I put it in real estate? Should I have it in cash? Should I have it in gold? Should I have it in silver? Should I have it under the bed? You know, what should I do? You know, it just becomes impossible. A book that I would highly recommend, and I've been recommending this for some time, but if you want a game-changing, perspective-changing book, it's called The Islamic Antichrist. It sounds horrible, but it's an amazing book. It was written in 2009 by Joel Richardson. He's a former Muslim who found faith in Jesus, who found Jesus to be the true Messiah. And the premise of the book, in short, is that our Antichrist is exactly the Messiah that Muslims are looking for, and vice versa. And so the theory is, and and he predicted in 2009 that by the year 2025, which we're three years away, that the dominant religion of the world would be Islam. And the prediction is because whoever the Antichrist is going to be, they're going to have to have significant sway and relationship with the Islamic community in order to bring the world together in peace. And I think we see a lot of that unfolding right now. Without going on and boring you with more details as to why I think Jesus most likely can come back in our lifetime, consider this as a perspective changer. For most of you in this room, you will see the Lord within the next 50 years. That ends the argument right there. If that doesn't change your perspective, most of us will see the Lord in the next 50 years. Some of us a lot sooner. But that changes how you live. That changes how you think about things. I want to define some terminology as we jump into this today. The first is the tribulation. What is the tribulation? Well, Scripture says that the tribulation is a seven-year period of testing that is going to come upon the world in the end times, just before Christ's return. And the first three and a half years of that will probably be pretty tolerable, will not be insane. The last three and a half will be incredibly intense. And it won't be until the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years into it, where the Antichrist fully reveals himself and demands worship of himself. And we'll talk about that. But up until that point, the Antichrist will be a world leader who unites people, who brings nations together under a false pretense of peace, who signs treaties and forms alliances and seems to be the best thing that we've always been looking for. And everyone will look to this person as the Messiah, And that's why he will eventually demand worship of himself. Verse 22 of our passage today informs us so that the tribulation will not last a full seven years. That's one of the many reasons why I think it's impossible for us to predict the day and the hour that Christ returns. Because it's not like, oh, seven years have gone by, so Christ should come any minute now. No. The tribulation period of seven years is going to be interrupted because Jesus says in verse 22, unless those days have been cut short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, for believers, those days will be cut short. So maybe six years, six and a half years, five and three quarters, nobody knows. But that's why the day of the Lord, Christ's return, the rapture, is going to happen like a thief in the night. The Antichrist is not Satan but someone inspired and literally possessed by Satan to deceive the world and deceive the nations, who, as I said, will eventually go nuts and demand worship of himself. That's the abomination of desolation referred to in Scripture. Now, understand that originally, historically, the abomination of desolation already happened. 
It was in 168 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian king, invaded Jerusalem, stormed the temple, and turned the temple of God into a shrine for Zeus. And on the altar in the temple, he sacrificed a number of pigs, which was the most defiling, insulting thing to the Jews. And so that was the original abomination of desolation. But scripture, as so often is the case, when we talk about fulfillment, there's a short-term fulfillment and there's a long-term fuller fulfillment. And so we are looking forward to the greater fulfillment. And the greater fulfillment, in my mind, is not exactly even a leader who comes and reinstitutes the sacrificial system in the temple and disrupts that, even though that's what I'm going to read about here in a minute from Daniel. The big picture of this leader is that the leader, the Antichrist, is going to seat himself in the temple in Jerusalem and proclaim himself as God, as the Messiah, and demand worship of himself. But at the midpoint, three and a half years, listen to what Daniel says, the prophet Daniel, Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 27. He says, the ruler, meaning the Antichrist, will make a treaty with many, so Israel and many other nations, for a period of one set of seven which is seven years, but after half this time, three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object, no one knows exactly, maybe a picture of himself, who knows what, that causes desecration because he's going to demand worship of this object. It could be like the, you know, the golden calf in the Old Testament or you know, the, the statue that... King Nebuchadnezzar erected in Daniel's day, until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Daniel 11, two chapters later, follows up by saying his army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. So a lot going on. That's some terminology to understand. As we begin to quickly weed through Matthew 24. I want to I establish something that I think is very important to establish. The early church and early church fathers, one and all, unanimously, never expected a rapture that was separate from or different from the second coming of Christ. You need to understand that. You need to understand that a pre-tribulational rapture is 200 years old. And yes, there were talk of this and that, but the early church and the early church fathers never wrote about it. All of them fully expected to encounter the Antichrist, to be persecuted and tested for their faith and to perhaps even die for their faith because they didn't see the rapture as separate from the second coming. They saw them as one and the same. And I would challenge all of you to search. I mean, you need to understand from the outset, your view on the end times is not a salvation issue. It has nothing to do with whether you're going to heaven or not. It has nothing to do with whether you can be a member of this church. It's okay to disagree. But it is important to know for yourself. Very important. And the early church did not see two separate events. And as you read scripture, it is very difficult to see two separate events. There's a lot of theological gymnastics you have to do to make that work. And then you start reading the whole New Testament that way rather than reading things in context. And so you might ask, well, where did the idea of a rapture come from? 
the idea of a rapture comes from overemphasizing the meaning of Greek words. And we often do that. And I would tell you from the outset that if you're a Greek student, you will learn from day one in Greek that more important than the meaning of a word is the context within, its, within that it's written. And, and also how many times that word is used. So a particular Greek word, if it's translated 200 times in the New Testament one way, you don't take the way it's translated three times in the New Testament as how it should be translated unless the context warrants it. So context is always king. Context always trumps. But one of the Greek words is the word harpazo, which means to catch up, to be caught up, to take by force. The other Greek word that's used uh, is translated as gathered together. And you'll find that in our passage today in, cha- in chapter 24 that we're in verse 31. Um, and it's actually episunago. And episunago is the, the Greek word from which we get synagogue, the gathering together. We don't call ourselves uh, a synagogue. We call ourselves the ecclesia, the church, the called out. Uh, but the same thing, the gathering together of God's people. And yet consistency is constantly violated when people translate different passages. For example, the word for rapture is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 18, the great famous passage that so many of us turn to, which I will read in just a moment. <clears throat> and they say, well, that is definitely talking about the rapture. <clears throat> but here in chapter 24 of Matthew, because episonago is used, the gathering together, gathering together is not the same idea of being caught up, and so therefore this has to be talking about the second coming. If your heads don't already hurt and you're still tracking with me, understand that in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is talking to Christians who are afraid that they've missed the rapture, and he's encouraging them, no, you need to know that these things will happen first before Christ comes, so don't worry that you've missed it. And he uses that word again of gathering together. And commentators almost invariably agree that he's talking about the rapture there. So how can gathering together mean the second coming in our passage, but mean the rapture somewhere else? unless the context warrants it, and it doesn't. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord that we who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. First the believers who have died will rise from their graves and then, then together with them we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and then we will always be with the Lord forever. So encourage one another with these words few points about this and please understand at this point we're 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 almost through this and we are not going to end on a divisive note i just want to challenge you enough to think and really dive into this and care enough to want to dive into it but here's the thing we've always heard that the dead in christ will rise first we will not precede those who have fallen away 
or not fallen away, but fallen asleep. Christians who have gone before us, who have died. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and 5, talks about saints who resurrect after the tribulation. And John the Apostle, in writing that, said, this is the first resurrection. And so my question is, if dead saints who have gone before us are resurrecting at the rapture, which happens before the tribulation, how can the resurrection in Revelation that happens after be the first? This would be the first. It's something you have to wrestle with. It's something you have to figure out for yourself. Also, 1 Corinthians 15:52, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. We will tra- be transformed. Sin has lost its sting. Death is no more. First uh, John chapter three verse two says that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. So, if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, you have to believe that when we're caught up and we see him face to face, we're instantly transformed into his glorious image. We're perfected, but all of the rest of the people that have died during the tribulation won't be perfected until afterwards. Whereas if we're all caught up after, we're perfected and changed at the same time. It's something to wrestle with and to be challenged with. Furthermore, back to Second Thessalonians 2, which I referenced earlier. Paul is comforting Christians who fear that they've missed the rapture, which they believed was the second coming, one and the same, by informing them that they will see the revealing of the Antichrist before Christ returns. So how are they going to see something if they're not there to see is the question. And the answer all the time by commentators is, well, these are Christians who find the Lord during the rapture. I mean, during the tribulation, not Christians in general. And that's the same thing that gets interpreted in our passage as well, that when God sends the angels to gather all of the elect from the four corners of the world, from every part of the heavens, that that apparently is only talking about tribulational saints, people who find the Lord during the tribulation, and not the whole body. On and on and on. And why does Jesus in our own passage say to his own disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation? Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour, but he knows that if his disciples live to see that day, that they will see the abomination before they will see his coming. And they're certainly not tribulational saints. They're already his disciples. And Jesus says in our passage that the days will be cut short. And why will they be cut short for the sake of the elect? Is that only people that find him during the tribulation, or is that all Christians that they're cut short for? Things we have to wrestle with and we have to understand. Very important. I believe that the warnings of Matthew 24 were not only put there for Jesus' disciples, but for us as well. And I want you to hear them again. I'm going to quickly run through them. Verse 4, see that no one misleads you. Verse 5, because many will be misled. Verse 10, many will fall away, deliver up one another and hate one another. Verse 11, many false prophets will mislead many. Verse 12, people's love will grow cold. Verse 13, it's the one who endures to the end that will be saved, which is not a salvation by works. It's perseverance of the saints, meaning that your, your endurance and your perseverance proves your salvation. It doesn't earn your salvation, it proves it. Verse 15, that you will see the abomination of desolation. Verse 16, when you see these signs, flee for the mountains. 
Verse 17, don't go back into your house to get your stuff. Verse 18, don't go get your jacket. Verse 19, hopefully you're not a pregnant woman or a nursing woman because that's not going to be fun. Um, Verse 20, pray that it's not in winter or on the Sabbath. Verse 23, don't believe anyone who says here's the Christ. Verse 24, even if they display great signs and wonders, which these end-time people will have the ability to perform miraculous things, but don't believe them. And when you see these signs and wonders, verse 32 and 33, know that Jesus is near. Verse 42, be on the alert for you don't know the day or the hour Jesus is coming. And verse 44, be ready because Jesus is coming at an hour that we don't expect. I believe all of those warnings are there for a reason. Jesus gave them to his disciples, and I believe that we are to take heed as well. So now I want to turn a corner, and I want to give you the big picture. Because many of us are all over the room, and that's okay in terms of where we are with this, and we don't have to all agree on this. I believe the most important thing that you can do to be ready and be prepared for Christ's return is to know this. Know this. Friends, you don't have to go to the synagogue and ask a scribe to see the scroll. You have all of the scrolls right here in one book, in one language. You don't have to know Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek and all of the other languages that they had. You have it all here in English, ready, available. Know your word. Know him. So important that we do. Why? Because that's the way that we guard ourselves and our loved ones against deception, against apostasy. Secondly, it's the way that we find strength and comfort tangibly through God's word. It is so important to know God's word. So important. One of my favorite people to read is Martin Lloyd-Jones. I told you before he was pastor of Westminster Abbey for years. He was a medical doctor before that. If you can find any of his books, read them. They're worth it. But listen to what he says about the end times. This is the big picture right here, so beautifully put. He says, the great doctrine of the second coming has in a sense fallen into disrepute because of the tendency on the part of some to be more interested in the how and the when of the second coming rather than to the fact of the second coming. If you hear one thing that I say today, you need to know it is not important, the how and the when, other than us being prepared and being ready. The big picture is he's coming. And if you know him, he's coming for you. If you don't know him, you need to get to know him. And you need to know what he's done for you. Because that's the only way to be safe. But don't miss the beauty of his coming because you get lost in the weeds. Don't throw up your hands and say, well, we'll just never understand it. And it's all speculation. No, be prepared. But take joy and comfort in the big picture. I want you to remember with me that there were two important steps to a Jewish marriage. The first step in a Jewish marriage was the betrothal, the promised agreement to marry, and secondly, the actual wedding ceremony. These two events were often separated by an extended period of time during which the couple remained faithful to one another through the wedding ceremony, though the wedding ceremony was not yet finalized. Our betrothal to Jesus Christ takes place at the point of salvation, but the wedding ceremony occurs when Christ, the bridegroom, comes back for his bride. So you and I are in between. We've been pledged to Christ as the bride of Christ, the church, and yet the wedding is in front of us. And please understand that, as we said last week, 
You are not awaiting an event or a show. You are awaiting a wedding in which you are a part of that. And we're not talking about some wacky Mormon sister-wife wedding where we're all going to be the bride of Christ. We're talking about you are going to be joined to Christ inseparably for all of eternity, and you will be more fulfilled, more alive, more complete than you have ever been in your life. Every longing that you have will be fulfilled in Him finally. That is what you are looking forward to. That is what I am looking forward to. But that is exactly what Jesus talked about in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And because I go to prepare a place for you, I will also come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When a man proposed to a woman, he took some time and he went to his father's house and he added on to it. When he was done, he came back and the wedding happened and he called his wife to go live with him in the extended part of the father's house. That's exactly the language Jesus is using. What did he do to prepare this house? He went to the cross. That's how he prepared the way. That's how he added on to the father's house, by securing our salvation through Calvary. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God through him. And so we are pledged to Christ, betrothed to Christ, and we are awaiting the wedding day that we will participate and be an active part in. I love this quote, and I want to end with this today, or the beginning of the end. True pastoral form. I want to, I want to touch upon each of these because they're so important. Someone said, a guy named Millard Erickson, he's a, he's a systematic theology professor at Northwestern. He said, the second, of, second coming of Christ will be personal, physical, visible, unexpected, triumphant, and glorious. And I want to touch on each one of those for a moment. Personal, because each one of us will be united with Christ forever. Perfectly fulfilled and complete. We are getting ready for a wedding. Like I said, not a show, not not an event. This will be something that we actively, personally participate in. Physical, because our very bodies will be transformed into his perfect image. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sickness, no more cancer, no more envy, no more hate, no more division. We will be perfectly whole like him. Visible, it will be a global unveiling. No one will miss it. Unexpected, no one knows the day or the hour. It will be like a thief in the night. Triumphant, because the trumpet will sound. We will rise to meet the Lord in the air, because in, in the custom of ancient kings, the people of the city would march outside of the city, join the king as he paraded through the city to announce his victory. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're rising to meet him in the air, not to go up to heaven, but to join him as he descends to earth to set up his millennial kingdom to proclaim with him, and, and what a joyful event that's going to be. And glorious, because he will illuminate the sky. Revelation says, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven and the new earth, the city has no need of the sun or the moon, for the glory of God himself illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. Someone said, like a smartphone screen made blank by the rays of direct sunshine, 
One day we will see Christ face to face. And on that day, all the vain spectacles in this world of illusions and all of the pixelated idols of our age will finally and forever dissolve away in the radiance of his splendor. Now this is what I want you to see that's so incredibly beautiful. Look at verses 29 and 30 of our passage. Look at what's happening here. Immediately after the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened. The sun's going out. The moon will not give its light. The moon's going out. And the stars and the celestial planets are going to fall from the sky like a meteor shower. You want to talk about the best 4th of July you've ever witnessed, like stars and, and planets and lights falling from the sky. It's going to be black, but Jesus is going to fill the whole sky. He is going to illuminate it. That's why no one's going to miss it. He is going to be spotlighted. He is going to be the light that glows and lights up. I mean, it's just, it's going to be insane as we look to him, as he comes in the sky in glory and power. Verse 30. What a huge thing. I love how C.S. Lewis depicted Christian faith, and I love how he closed it out in the, in the last battle. As he, as he brought the Chronicles of Narnia to an epic conclusion, and how he captures the absolute joy that will come upon us as we're reunited with God and our loved ones for all of eternity. This is what he says. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write about them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was the only beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. I hope you come to a place in your life when you realize that nothing that you leave behind on this earth even holds a candle to what you're going to receive. And I hope that you trust that the God who is able to bring joy to you and fulfillment to you here on earth is able to satisfy you completely there. You're not going to be floating on a cloud, strumming a harp, bored out of your mind forever and ever. You're going to be in His presence, and Scripture says in His presence is fullness of joy. You're going to be reunited with your loved ones. It's going to be insane. And yet we want to stay here. We fear the day. We should be looking forward to the day. The older I get, the more I look forward to the day. And I love this perspective. I want to call the worship team back up because this is talking about them. Listen to what this person said. The world won't end in a climate change apocalypse. The world won't end in world war. The world ends... In worship. Neither a bang nor a whimper, but a shout, the sound of a trumpet, and the sound of praise. Let's pray.